Welcome to the broadcast. Every Arizona homeowner's best friend. Thanks for tuning in. It's Rosie on the house. Your weekend wake-up tradition. I talk to the trees. Stop and hear what I say. Come on around back, Arizona. It is Saturday morning, 8 o'clock, the outdoor living hour here at Rosie on the House, second Saturday of the month. So we are talking trees, but we also have a great guest in studio. We'll be expanding beyond just trees. We've got Justin Rauner of Agriscaping joining us in studio. And if you're out and about today or planning to go to the home show, you can actually get to visit with Justin in his booth, 520. Yep, 520. 520. Right, right across from the... Master Gardener's booth and area where there's a lot of great education for you. And that's happening at, what time does that open? It opens at 10 o'clock. 10, down at the fairgrounds. Uh, But we have, and we've got open lines as well, so you can join the conversation here, 1-888-767-4348. That's 1-888-ROSIE for you. Text questions can be sent to 411-923, or if you need a little help with plant or insect identification, you can email info at rosieon.com thehouse.com. And for those of you following along in your homeowner handbook, the home maintenance calendar, you know, we're talking, our tree of the month is the evergreen elm. And we were looking through the archives. This is now the fourth time in the last decade that it's been, it's made the tree of the month list. Well, it's worthy to hit that list a number of times. It's a wonderful tree here, here in Arizona. And, uh, it's, uh, a little misnomer to call it the evergreen elm, so don't expect it to be a completely evergreen. It will lose its leaves, but it's a beautiful, one of the fastest-growing hardwood trees that you can grow here in Arizona. Great shade tree. How big will it get? So about 30 feet tall is about, about where it kind of maxes out, starts you know rounding out a little bit more. A beautiful tree, beautiful bark, uh, and it, it has a good wide canopy as well. About a 30-foot canopy is what you can expect from it. And what kind of maintenance do I need to shape it and get it into that shade once it's mature? Is it like, you know, a lot of our native desert trees, they constantly want to weep back down, weep back down and be like a little gumdrop uh, to the bird's eye view. But we've constantly trimming them up so we can get underneath it and enjoy the shade. Will it, does it have that tendency to weep down? It only has a localized weeping habit, meaning it, that it's only weeping uh, within a couple feet of the branch, and so it's not weeping down to the ground. So this is one that if you want to build that canopy, about every year we usually will, will trim up the bottom of three branches until we get the canopy to the height we want, and then you can stop. You don't have to really worry about that anymore, but we don't want to do too much because we don't want to get top, you know, really top-heavy. We want that, that trunk to really grow out and swell out at the base. And so, yeah, just trimming the bottom three branches once a year, and then you get it to the canopy, and as it grows, it'll it'll widen itself out all on its own. You don't have to do a lot of top trimming. It's a pretty easy maintenance tree with uh, beautiful foliage. I like the easy maintenance. And you were mentioning <laughs> for the die-hard um, homesteaders uh, that you could uh, you you could use this as an edible. You can absolutely use it as an edible. It's a wonderful edible tree. So it, it actually very similar texture and flavor to a, a, a New Zealand spinach. And really only the, the prepper kind of people out there are going to know what a New Zealand spinach is. It's a, a summer-growing uh, green that you can grow here in Arizona. But it's, it's, it's got kind of a rougher texture to the leaf, and it's usually the younger leaves that you'll want to eat. Uh, we like cooking them down if we're going to use them, you know, on a regular. But you can also even eat the bark, and it's got some other medicinal values and stuff too for those that are into the medicinal side and, and really want to be uh, all on their own and off-grid and, and learn how to 
take care of their their uh, diarrhea and stuff like that. There's some <laughs> there's some benefits to to the elm tree and the elm bark, and you'll find that even in stores, you'll find elm bark and essence of elm or. There's a lot of cool stuff that actually comes from that elm tree, including uh, your chisel handles. I think most chisel handles are actually made out of elm wood. Very, very hard wood, great handle-making wood. Uh, not an easy splitting wood, not my favorite firewood, I'll just say that. <laughs> that's that's the one after the fire gets roaring, then you put that in there to keep it going for the oh, next yeah. two or three hours. Yes, you don't want to start with that. That's not one that's going to start very good. That'll make a really good coal. I mean, it makes a good bio biochar. I mean, that stuff, you know, it burns hotter, and it's a, it's a very hard wood. And it's also known as the Chinese elm. So in the nursery, if you're looking for it, you could find it under either name, but it's the same same tree, correct? That is correct. I mean, it really replaced the a number of different types of elms that used to grow all over the United States, but there was a, a Dutch... A Dutch disease that kind of came through, wiped out most of the big elm trees. And then the Chinese elm was brought in about 50 years ago. And it is native to Asia and China, but it is not susceptible to pretty much every form of disease. Uh, there's there's a couple of diseases that might catch them when they get about 30 years old, but most people don't live in the same house for that long to even worry about it. So, And I know a lot of people are like, oh, we should only plant stuff from the desert. But if you look at the longitude line, from Arizona, and it goes through a great part of China, and that's, you know, citrus is all from Asia. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, that obviously is a huge part of Arizona and our growing fields out here. So it's, you know, that along that long, longitude line, it's a very, you know, there's a lot of good, it's good plants that, yeah. that have established very well here. Yeah, and these these guys run their roots pretty deep and wide. They're, they are not uh, as invasive as some of the other trees, especially some of the desert trees. And so if you're wanting to put a pathway next to it, uh, that won't buckle the pathway. It takes a long time. Or, you know, if you've got at least a three-inch uh, inch concrete pad or concrete pathway, that's by, you can put up to about three feet to it, and it's not going to have an issue. It'll actually, those roots will grow around that. Uh, and it won't won't buckle everything and cause you some major problems later on. Which is actually a good segue into the next topic. We we're going to talk about the benefits of trees. Uh, but another take on that was uh, the precautions of trees, because you also mentioned that you just cut down your Chinese elm. <laughs> I did. So I had one in my backyard that was right by my pool, and that thing just it just had to come down. That thing was uh, <laughs> dropping so many leaves. It gotten so big, it dropping the leaves in my pool and. That's the thing about an evergreen, quote, evergreen elm. The, the Chinese elm will lose its leaves, but it's losing them on a semi-regular basis. They're always dropping a few leaves and things. They'll bloom usually in the late summer, and so it has a little bit of a extra extra stuff that falls off. But also, you know, if you don't want it too close to the pool with those roots growing, you know. It, it was a 20-year-old tree. It was a pretty big tree. And did you eat it when you, you – is that how you – Cut it down gradually. Just you know, that was that was I the dinner plan for the it. month. <laughs> no, well, I didn't go that route, but we did take a lot of those branches and fed them to my sheep and fed them to the cows. You know, so it's it's a good good forage type plant if you're not really into the the woodier flavor of the of the leaf. <laughs> and the roots is really something that is one of the reasons we see a lot of trees being taken out. You see yeah. block walls getting lifted. You see houses, uh, especially if they get into drain lines, uh, sewer lines. I mean they. There's a myth that they seek out that. I've, I've heard two different theories, and, and one is that you know the roots can seek out the water, and the other one is no, the roots just grow, and if they find the water, then they stay there in the water and they grow there. They're not, they don't have to go look any further. 
Well, they don't have eyes, last time I checked, so they're not exactly looking. But what happens is they do grow out seeking out water, but once they find it, then they definitely gravitate more to that. It's, there's a lot more roots that end up growing in that space if water's found. And so it, it kind of is, they kind of seek it out because they, they do, as soon as they find moisture, there's there's a lot more growth pushed to that area to draw up that moisture. And so it is important to make sure that you, we like to deep water those trees because we want those those roots to really cultivate down and out rather than go surface. And so anytime we're starting a big tree, if we want a tree to grow big, we want, to, we want that water to go deep and we want it to be infrequent. So that's another important piece of the puzzle is that we want it infrequent, but very deep. You know, I want water going three feet deep every time I water it. And I'm not going to water it again until the top two inches or so are dry to really establish that deep root system, which will hold your tree up too. So another thing we see a lot of with, is that if we throw these types of trees in a grass environment where we got a lot of shallow, frequent watering, what often happens is that tree ends up growing roots and keeps them shallow because it doesn't have any need to put energy into growing a deep root. And then when these big windstorms come, and they always do, you know, here in Arizona, and that haboob comes flying through, it's, it, it might pick up that tree and just turn it over, and you, you revealing the fact that its root system was incredibly shallow. And those come a lot of times with rains as well. So the rain is yep. softening up the soil and just making it that much easier for the wind to uproot it. Yep. If we've got a three-day rain event, and then followed by a, a pause, and then a, a big storm comes in. It's that's when most of the trees get toppled. That's when the tree workers, uh, you know, they they sleep for three days building up for that that workload that's coming. That's absolutely true. And when I when I ever give a my team a, a day off because of rain, I, I remind them. I says, you know, when if rain is happening, that means we have to double our efforts, likely or triple our efforts as soon as the rain is over, because there's going to be a lot more work to do. So rest up and get ready for work. You got it. Rest up. Don't go playing. <laughs> now, uh, on other precautions for trees, you know, that just comes back to something we talk about frequently, the right plant, the right, the right tree, the right place. You know, understanding how big those roots are. And like you were saying with the elm, it's not one that's super invasive. Right. Um, you, and so understanding what kind of root zone it is, how high it's going to get, the size of the canopy. You're talking deep watering. If you've got, you know, you're watering out on the drip edge of the tree, if that grows up to the foundation of your home, well, that's going to bring problems to the foundation of your home as well. So it's, you know, it's, it's not just as simple as finding something pretty and sticking it in the ground. Right. Now, with these harder wood trees, they have a cooler habit, too, that you can actually bring your water lines a little bit closer in to, to the, the base of the tree. Like, let's say we set it up so it's about three feet out from the base of our planting. But we'll put a subterranean kind of a perforated pipe down into the ground and put either a bubbler or our drip system in there so it forces the water to go down and then draws it out. And what will happen is those hard roots, actually, the water kind of trickles along those root lines and forces it out to go out into the, into the drip zone. And so it's kind of got a natural effect that draws that water. Even if you water it closer to the inside, it'll still draw that water out to the outer roots just by the nature of how the tree grows. And so that allows you to put it as a streetscape tree. It's a wonderful street streetscape kind of tree when you only have a skinny little space to plant something in. You can still water close to it and still be able to effectively water the entire tree. It's Rosie on the House Saturday morning. You'd like to join the conversation, talk to Justin of Agriscaping. It's one 767 4348 That's one 888 rosie you. Our text messages can be sent to 411-923. Why did the tree cross the road? It had to leaf. 
Gary writes these at night. That's hilarious. I, I chuckled a little bit. Wasn't sure if that was allowed. <laughs> Dad jokes are in, man. Oh, man. That was <laughs> a great one. all in. I'm, my, I'm taking notes, so I'll bring them back home to my kids. <laughs> well, when I, I want to talk about the concept of agriscaping because it's very interesting but you had mentioned a tree during the break that i wanted to spend a few minutes uh talking about because i'd never heard of of this variety before a, a moringa the moringa so they call it the tree of life and uh, there's an african variety the moringa oleiferia that works really great here in arizona and you can eat pretty much every part of that thing i mean the leaves packed full of protein all the nutrients i mean they make uh, there's Multi-level marketing companies based just on the powder from that stuff. Huh. I do remember talking about a tree of life, but I don't remember it being called the Moringa. And it grows well here? It grows well here. It's something that even within a, a year, you can buy a little one-gallon tree, and it'll grow 16 feet tall in the oh. first year. <laughs> that is a tree of life. and you, But they're not a very hardwood tree. No, it's a very softwood tree. It's one that we like using as kind of a... Uh, I guess a preliminary hedge. If someone's telling us, a client's saying, hey, we want to we wanna hide the neighbors as quick as possible. It's like, oh, well, you can either buy a massive tree for $6,000 and it'll hide it but never grow any bigger than that. Or you can get a smaller tree that grows incredibly fast and use that while your, interim, your bigger trees that you really want there grow in, in place of that. So we'll put them like instead of 20 feet apart, we'll put things 5 or 10 feet apart, let them grow super fast in that first year hide the neighbor and you got this uh, beautiful hedge real quick very good i like it i'm gonna have to go dig that one out of uh, the archive moringa moringa yeah they also the in Ooh. india they use them a lot i mean it's a great food tree it has a bean it's about two feet long and you can slice that thing up and cook it up and it's actually really really a uh, really good tree we've got some neighbors come mo- developing around us that might be our, our answer we were looking for so We'll have to check that out. But I want to talk about this concept that you'd put together. If, uh, anyone that hasn't heard you on the program before, talk about this concept of agriscaping. Well, agriscaping is what you get when you bring together the best of productive agriculture with the best of ornamental landscaping. Essentially giving you, uh, a, land, you know, a, a landscape that tastes as good as it looks. You know, if you're putting a lot of money and time into a landscape, well, it, it should provide something more to you than just looking good. And so we like to try to find ways to then integrate edible plants, things that people really use. I mean, obviously, the elm tree is something that may, isn't on a, a recipe book as far as I'm aware of, but it is something on survival lists for sure. But then things that, that people really do love eating and find a way to get them to grow right there on site. I mean, you can't get any more local than your own lemon off of your tree or even your own, you know, lettuces out of your garden. And so that's, that's what agriscaping is in, in a nutshell. And you had mentioned something earlier about a New Zealand squash that I was a leafy green that grows in the summer, which, you know, generally, you know, that's the farthest thing you're thinking in the summer. You're just trying to get your okra to make it through or, you know, your, your melons to hang through and, uh, you know, that, that hot summertime. But there's a leafy green you can grow during the summer here. Yeah, that New Zealand spinach. There's a couple other ones. There's another one called uh, longevity spinach. That's another good one. Or Egyptian Egyptian spinach, there's some other types that actually work pretty good. High nutrient densities. Um, and they're all yeah. spinach. Do they taste as bad as they sound? <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> I, and I, I would say it's ones I mix in. And the other cool part, I mean, something we do at agriscaping that no one else has done, it's it's uh, part of the agriculture that, that was kind of a missing piece is we want to help people optimize their 
suboptimal conditions that they often have around their house. And what we ended up finding as we've studied this over the last couple decades is that we found that you know, there's microclimates all over in people's yards. And we began classifying them back in 2001 and then started tracking, well, what grows when in those spaces? You know, so we're going away from the traditional gardening and farming calendars. And we started trying to see, well, what will grow in the suboptimal condition that might be a little shady. So what we found is almost all your traditional greens will grow in suboptimal conditions at your house, even in the summertime. So I still have lettuces and I still have good leafy greens and I'm growing in a different part of my yard than my traditional gardening space. We'd call it an e-microclimate. So a lot of the trees we're talking about create a filtered shade that is actually a great place to grow your greens in the summertime, but you're going to grow them much more dense and you're going to grow more of a leafy green that you can just harvest about once you know, once a week, you just harvest what you need, about three inches, more of a, a, a baby green. And now you got, it's more like a cash crop for you. You can just come, keep coming out and keep harvesting it. So don't expect it to grow into a big head of lettuce during the summertime. We just keep them small. And they still grow and they're still sweet. And so that's one of the tricks that we can integrate right in the landscape. And we'll do it in a way that still looks, looks pretty and looks, uh, looks intentional. And that's a, a part of it is the design element that goes into it. It's not just grabbing of these varieties and putting them all together. It's a, a very intentional design that comes with the whole concept. Absolutely. I mean, we want your yard to be a dream come true, not the nightmare. You know? <laughs> and that's what most people get when they start trying to integrate food everywhere they can. Within about two years, they're overwhelmed, not so much by the food they're producing. It's all the problems they've created. And if you, if you can design it right, you can create something that's, you know, easy to manage and with support of, you know, online tools that we provide and, and, and a support system of where you can channel all the excess food you got, then you don't start creating the problems that most people are afraid of. And that's what we provide with agriscaping and our network of wonderful support team, uh, Utopian Harvest, helping people integrate their food right into the local food economy. Because when you got too much zucchini, even your neighbors start getting tired of it, right? You know, it's, I mean, that's just the nature of growing some of these food things that we can grow in Arizona because they often all harvest at the same time. People binge garden rather than make it part of their routine in daily life. It's like they're routinely maintaining their, their, their properties a lot of the time, or they hire people to do that. But when it comes to food, you got to find a way to make it routine too. Don't binge garden. Don't binge garden. I like that because it is easy to get started, and then you get a couple sprouts and you get excited, and so you, you do twice as much. And then that happens, and then you double that, and then all of a sudden you're overwhelmed and you burn yourself out. Yeah. All right, we've got Justin Ronner of Agriscaping in studio today, and he'll also be at the Maricopa County Home Show later this afternoon after the broadcast at 10 o'clock. So tall a tree, so small a man. A man may grow for all he's worth, but only trees are down to earth. So tall a tree, so small a man. Speaking of trees, speaking of agriscaping and growing what you eat eat what you grow it's a great time for your uh, bare root fruit trees to get find their way into the ground yeah and if you haven't gotten them i mean bare root fruit trees best way to get a wide variety of fruit that uh, can grow here and so that's an important piece of the puzzle is uh, if you are growing food at home fruit trees are probably one of your top things to have and what type of fruit trees uh, you know there's a lot of varieties that do grow well here and there's a lot that don't 
Yeah, you got apples, peaches, uh, cherries, plums. I mean, a lot of people say, oh, you can't grow you can't grow cherries here. Now, that's one interesting piece. We've got six varieties of cherries we've actually been able to pull off in the, the Phoenix and Desert Southwest. But you got to get it in the right spot. So just like we were talking about before, a microclimate does makes all the difference, even for fruit trees, if you got stuff that has a higher chill requirement, like a cherry. And one of the other projects, in addition to agriscaping that you work on, is uh, the newest, the, the first botanical garden to go up in Arizona in yeah, probably 50 years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the Queen Creek Botanical Garden, that was a, a project we started a few years ago. We opened it, I guess you could say, prematurely during COVID to give people a place to get out and they could volunteer out there. We could give them some food because it's the world's first all-edible botanical garden right there in Queen Creek. Now, we're back under construction right now. It's a nonprofit organization, and, and there's a lot of stuff that goes on around it. So the buildings are all being built now, restaurants coming in and all that stuff. And so for right now, you can't come visit us, but you can still contribute to the growth of what it's up to and its mission to really inspire people to grow their own food at home in a beautiful way. And that's with the bare root fruit tree sale. So they've uh, they've got uh, that going right now, and so there's still a lot of trees available if you'd like to get those. And when we're saying bare root, I mean, you go there, and it looks like you're just buying a stick. Pretty much. I mean, we, we focus on making sure we're bringing in stuff that's a caliper about five-eighth five, uh, inch or one inch. Uh, so we're looking at a pretty large tree. They can still show up as a six-foot-tall tree with some scaffold branches already there, some pretty good root ball. But uh, what you can do is you can take your Corolla over there and you can put 20 trees in there where if you had them in a pot, you, you wouldn't even get one. <laughs> so it's a great way to get a big tree for a low cost and, uh, again, getting the variety because it's a scarce commodity to get these kind of trees in, in Arizona. There's a, a very limited supply nationwide right now on fruit trees, and that's one of the other challenges is just being able to get them any other time than now. It's almost impossible, especially <laughs> Well, and you really couldn't plant it any other time than now. It's bare root because it's dormant. They're deciduous. I mean, you could never get a bare root in the summer and expect anything to happen. No. You, know, you could expect it to die. I guess that's one thing you could expect. <laughs> that, that, that could happen. That's what happened, yeah. <laughs> so not only the, the supply is uh, a factor right now, but it's the timing of the year. You, you know, This is the only time of year we really have a good opportunity, a good window to get those planted. Yeah, basically from now till about February 15th, that's that's your window. And because uh, we want to catch them before they start to leaf out. That's the most, the, the highest likelihood of success is getting it done while they're still dormant. Now, how do you like to water your trees? Uh, most of mine, we do drip watering. If I have the option and I can flood irrigate, well, heck, I'll go with flood irrigation every time because that definitely gives that deep watering and it's infrequent. I mean, because you're not getting it every, you know, every, every week or you don't have, you have that as an option. But for the most part, we'll deep drip water our trees, and uh, depending on the size we want it to grow is going to determine what type of volume and how how we set up that watering system for those trees. And obviously, we're talking a lot uh, here about the water issue and our water supply and the dwindling reservoirs. You know, am I putting in a landscape if I do all this uh, that I'm not going to be able to water in a year, in two years, in five years? Well, I do have concerns more on the West Valley than I do the East Valley, and that has a lot to do with where the water comes from. I mean, if we're looking at the, the west of the state of Arizona, we've got a lot more challenges water-related, water or south, southern Arizona. We get into Tucson, we start, you know, Oracle Valley, some of those areas. They have a lot more water challenges because of the nature of their source. Um, but when we get into East Valley, we start getting north, you know, eastern Arizona, eastern Valley, we have a lot more water resources. So I, I would 
you know, there's a lot more wells. You can still get a well, you know, in some parts of Arizona. But that's because the aquifer is well charged. But when it really comes down to it across the board, you want to be more efficient with your water regardless. And so drip irrigating becomes a more efficient source. But then you start looking at alternative sources like rainwater harvesting. A lot of great new technologies out there for rainwater harvesting, doing it in a beautiful way. You don't need a tank above the ground to do rainwater harvesting. You can do them subterranean. Like we just helped install one in a front yard uh, in an HOA environment where we, we, we basically added a 500-gallon subterranean tank under the ground. And then we added this beautiful pondless water feature form that sits on top that helps circulate the water, keep it alive. But then that pumping system also integrates right into their landscape irrigation. And it'll use that water first. And then if that water runs out, then it has a backup of the city water, thereby providing the homeowner a a, a more economical way to water their yard that doesn't consume any outside water. It's using the water that fell on their property. We channel it all so it just filters right into that subterranean tank. And you can build on top of these tanks. I mean, that's how they're set up. And so there's a lot of really cool things you can do. And you, again, don't have to have that ugly black water tank, you know, right outside your, your kitchen window just to, to capture water. I don't know all the people that would need to be involved in this type of survey, but I would sure like to look at what if you establish this great agriscaping landscape and you know it's supplying you 60% of your food and how much water you used well how much water did it take to get that 60% if you went and bought it somewhere else to grow out in the field to be harvested to be trucked to be stocked on the shelf to be picked up at the grocery and brought back you know it, all of these other activities consume a lot of water so or, even though you might be using more water on your landscape than you were previously, are you really using less water because you are relying less on transportation and, uh, you know, to, to get this supply of food to you? Yeah, I'd love to know too. So hopefully if we got some ASU school <laughs> sustainability graduates or, you know, grad Just students. bored out of your mind yeah. looking for a project. Yeah, if you're, if you're a grad student needing a project, something to study, this sounds like a really cool thing to actually study. I think there'd be a lot of value in it, and I, you'd probably get approved by the board. So, you know, it might be a good one. M- m- get a grant for it. Yeah, you saying? might be able to get a grant, you know, and maybe get some money your way to, to help you do the study because that, I think, is important, especially as more water resources become a challenge. Uh, that's that's a great thing to be checking into to see how it compares to current methods that are out there and what's what's really the benefit of capturing rainwater or doing these things and then growing food at home versus growing in the field. I mean, I know that just typical homes use 40 times less water than traditional Arizona agriculture. And that's pretty evident out in Queen Creek. If anybody out there that owns wells, they know that their aquifers have risen quite a bit in the last four years just because of the overgrow the growth of the housing developments that were on top of previous ag land and so there's a lot less being pulled from the aquifer and thereby there's a whole lot more water available and that's why i'm a little less concerned east valley than west valley but that also is a motivator to me to plant more you know i'm on the complete opposite side of town and if you drive along the 303 when i moved out there it was still cotton lane and it was just a two-lane track with no nothing now it's a you know, three-way, each-way freeway, and as you go along, I mean, every day it seems like I drive that I end up going between Grand Avenue and I-10, you know, 50 more acres have been plowed on, leveled over, and some mega warehouses going up, and 
I just keep thinking, all right, how much farther is our food going to have to come from now? Right. Because you know, where 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 is it going to come from? So it we had been you know we had an orchard and a garden just because we enjoy it, but it was more of a motivator to secure our own food supply because like it's not like that farmer picked up and it went and started uh, a new farm out in Harkwell Hale. I mean, it, there's a law on not being able to develop more farmland. That's right. Well, and one thing so that's it's happened. Like where where's the food coming from if we're plowing it over for these warehouses? Well, it's coming from Chile is where it's going to be coming from. I mean, that's what's been happening. I, I know ASU did a study years ago that I was able to be a part of, and they found that uh, the average distance food was traveling was 1,250 miles to our U.S. cities. And that was years ago. And, you know, there's been all this push on growing more food locally. And since that time, we went back and looked at that study again. And ASU came out with another number. It was close to 1,500 miles. So the number actually went up. (laughs) Food is actually still, it's traveling further. And that has a lot to do with the urban sprawl taking over the agriculture. And it's got to come from somewhere. And so it's just coming from further away. I mean, when it all comes down to it, we got to start training ourselves not to want blueberries year-round. I mean, I think is what it comes down to. Work more seasonally becomes more locally. And then the demand, I mean, support the local growth movements. I mean, hopefully all of you are starting to realize that, uh, you know, an empty shelf just means that there's a farmer close by that's got some food for you. And start providing more money to them. Start buying from them now rather than waiting for the, the shelves to go to go empty, start doing that now, and then there'll be more of them if those types of challenges hit us again. If things get shut down, we need a, a more sustainable and uh, localized food supply and diverse. That's important, too. And you could look up uh, CSAs, Community Supported Agriculture, and those yeah. are farms that are designated to, you know, it's, it's a subscription service. So you come and you pay your X amount a month, and they provide X amount of produce a month. And you know that's all they're growing for. They're not exporting that food to wherever. It's it's they're exporting it to your home. Exactly. And and a lot of the things that we're doing with agriscaping, the Queen Creek Botanical Gardens, Utopian Harvest is trying to help create a more uh, systemized local food system. Basically, a uh, baby able to help micro farmers, so people that are backyard farmers, like my mom was and we were growing up. You know, when we ended up with excess zucchini that there was a channel that we could actually get it to the people that wanted to buy it and that they could get access to that, which then mo- would motivate, I mean, especially little kids these days, they can't get jobs, so but they can earn money <laughs> growing extra food in the garden. And it, you'll be surprised how many kids, once they start learning, would love to be growing some food and making some little, some little side money for themselves. So, And when we're talking about side money, it, that's, a, that's changed a lot right now when, you know, eggs used to be, 10 cents a piece and they're you know a buck a piece now oh. that, that, that money is, is a little different <laughs> yeah well, i just i just heard a friend of mine told me that in new york so a dozen eggs is over 11 dollars just for and this is not an organic egg this is just a regular old dozen eggs in new york over 11 bucks i'm like wow i mean i haven't seen them at 10 bucks a, a dozen here so it's it's definitely i mean three years ago two dollars and fifty cents was the average price yeah so just to give you some perspective and do you have any animals incorporated into your uh, agriscape? Absolutely. And, I mean, it's it's kind of a joke we, we talk about. Like in people that are in HOA environments are like, well, I can't have chickens. I was like, oh, well, you might be able to have ornamental jungle fowl. And like, well, what's that? <laughs> I was like, well, it's akin to kind of a parrot or a parakeet, things like that. But these birds will lay an egg a day or something close to that so you can still get it. But they are still, relatively speaking, more in a chicken family. The sultan-type varieties or even the silkies 
will pass off as a little bit different variety that you can set up in a way. I mean, we call them uh, our productive pets. So there's a whole class of pets that we love to integrate into our agriscaping designs for those who want to do it that integrates those types of things, protein sources, high protein sources. I mean, guinea pigs, great indoor animal that can also benefit your garden and benefit your uh, your food supply if you need it. And you were on the board with the city of Gilbert in overturning that chicken re- restriction. Correct. Uh, that was a six-year process getting that, getting that through. <laughs> but it really started, I think, with uh, Power Ranch and the community of Power Ranch. That was something we started uh, having having chickens or the ornamental jungle fowl getting the prettier ones and setting them up in beautiful ways that weren't stinky and loud and all that stuff making sure we didn't have the roosters and and that kind of grew until there were so many in the community the the HOA had to say well we're not going to get rid of it but we are willing we need to regulate it somehow and then we got the city involved and we had some great council members that came in and we worked together to create a new game plan to to remove the prejudice jargon out of the code and return to the basics of, is it loud? You know, is it stinky? You know, the, the things that make life nice in the neighborhood doesn't have to be against chickens. We just got to find a way to make sure that it accommodates the things we want out of a pet. Down to our final segment here in the Outdoor Living Hour, joined with Agriscaping founder, Justin Rahner, and you have quite a quite a number of resources on that agriscaping.com if somebody wanted to uh, kind of look at it from a bird's eye view and investigate a little bit more. There's stuff there, but they could also get engaged. And uh, you do not only on-site consultation, but you now do virtual consultations. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, and it really started during COVID because, you know, most people didn't want us to come over and see their property. So we found some cool technology that helps us be able to do virtual walkthroughs with them. We can use satellite imagery so we can really map out the microclimates that they have in their yard. And that's really the first place to start if you really want to get started with agriscaping, really optimize your your yard and to get it designed right, you got to get that initial consult. I mean, without that microclimate map and some study of your soil, your water conditions, your water resources, what's available to you, and what you like to eat, you're not going to really have a very good game plan to move forward with that's going to be cohesive. So you go to agriscaping.com and you can just click on Get Started. That's the place to start if you'd like to get an agriscape for yourself. And when you were talking about using water and you have an underground tank and it's part of this pondless fountain and the system knows to pull from here and when that's dry, pull from city – reminded me of our solar partner that was on with this this last summer fox valley solar has this smart switch so you know if you've got in addition to your panels you can have backup batteries and generators and you can set the switch as a priority so Mm -hmm. pull off the grid pull off the solar pull off the battery pull off the generator and you know then when the batteries get this percent low recharge it with the solar and you know it's a a very smart switch, and it sounded kind of like that with the water, but it reminded me of a couple articles I've saved. Have you seen uh, – I, I can't remember what ex- the exact term, but it's solar and farming together. So there's a lot of um, like sheep farmers mm-hmm. that will put up solar panels, and then the sheep keep the grass below it, beneath it, and then they use the sheep for wool harvesting and – uh, you know, the other byproducts you get from sheep. And uh, a lot of bee farmers are using solar to help shade and protect mm-hmm. their bees in the growing. Have you in, in 
merged th- that solar aspect into your agriscaping at all? Well, when, when you t- talk about it that way, it's pr- basically any place that my garden or my animals might need some shade, well, then I can put up a shade structure, and why not make it solar? I mean, now we're making a productive use of, of a structure to be able to then provide that shade. I mean, any canopy even in a, in a yard or garden, I mean, we've got this little uh, pergola kind of thing out there, and I keep looking at that. It's like, I should put some solar on that thing. You know, might as well benefit that as well. And the other cool thing is that any roof structure also channels water and increases the amount of, amount of water, natural water that's falling per square foot. It's like if I've got a 10,000 square foot lot with a 2,000 square foot house on it, well, that 2,000 square feet, if I'm only getting seven inches per year, well, I've just created 14, 14 inches per year for 2,000 square feet by having the house on it because I can flow that to that other area and I've now effectively doubled the amount of water available to that square footage just naturally. And so that's another thing to keep thinking about. So if I'm doing solar and creating a separate structure, I'm also channeling water and thereby offsetting some of my 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 water issues more, that I might have. Yeah. More surface area for rainwater, yeah. rainwater harvesting. Yep. My concrete pad also is another thing. It's That's all square footage, and that's some of the stuff that we do on those initial consults is we're going to look at how much available rainwater is there to harvest and where is it harvestable from. And that's how we come up with the calculations to figure out that that particular house we were talking about earlier needed a 500-gallon subterranean tank to be able to channel the water that was available there. So we didn't oversize it or undersize it. You know, we put it at the size that's going to work best for the amount of water coming off that roof. And that's all calculations we come we, we f- figure out for the homeowner in that initial consult. Now, do you have any projects that are completed that you know, people don't mind? Or if you give them a heads up, yeah, you can come by and check it out and look at it to, you know, if, if in addition to looking at it online, where could I go see a couple of these examples? Well, yeah, you can't just you can go wait by for the these botanical homeowners. gardens to open back yeah, up. You don't have to wait for that. I mean, downtown Chandler, there's a great project there. If you, if you want a bite to eat, it's a local grown. I mean, you can go to Recreo. So Recreo in downtown Chandler, great place. It's got a nice little garden in the back. That's all agriscaping. I mean, so there's food, fruit trees in there, a lot of stuff. There's rainwater harvesting, how we integrate that into it. It's all there. But then the food that's growing right there in that, that uh, nice little garden area in the back, it's being integrated right into the recipes. In, and it's, it's a fun place to go eat. And say the name of it again? Recreo. Recreo. Yeah. And what is this pickleball project you've got working on? It seems like every time I turn around, you've got something else you're – you know, you got your hand in getting getting started. Yeah, so that's in South Tempe. We haven't broken ground on that one yet. That's a it's called the Electric Pickle. So it'll be a twelve pickleball court uh, kind of. It's it's an awesome setup, but it's it's all the food and it's restaurants and pavilions and stuff. It's a great great entertainment place as well as just a great place to come and gather. And it'll be in a there in South Tempe off a of Jewel. Uh, a lot of good stuff happening over there. So there's a lot of fun stuff coming. Very good. Well, agriscaping.com if you'd like to get in touch with Justin or run out to the Maricopa County Home Shows today. You're in booth 520, 10 to what, 6, 5, 6? 10 to 5, and I'll be there live. So if you want to come to talk to me personally, I'll be right there. And it's also tomorrow, rain yeah. or not rain, because you're you're covered there. We are covered. So, very good. Well, thanks for spending your Saturday morning with us. Justin Runner, agriscaping, elegant, edible landscaping.